So tonight we're going to talk about the Bible. Surprise, surprise. And we actually have a theme this year for our gatherings as we come together the first week of each month. Uh, we're going to be talking about, does the Bible really say? And this theme was birthed in my kitchen this summer. I had some friends who came out to the blueberry field. Kara Brown was one of them. And I, I chew Kara Brown out when she brings a friend out to our blueberry fields and doesn't text me and tell me that they're in my backyard. And they pick blueberries and then they get home and they post on Facebook, look at the blueberries we got. And I say, I know where you were to get those blueberries and you did not say hi to me. So this particular day, she popped into my kitchen to avoid getting chewed out by me, but she walked in with the words, we really don't have much time, the guys are still at the store, and we just are giving you a hug, and then we're going to leave. Okay, great, thanks, you stopped by, you saved you getting chewed out, this is all good. As she stands in my kitchen for two minutes, she says, and I kid you not, Jennifer, can you just tell her what you think about the man being the spiritual leader of the household? And I said, and you only have two minutes? We had a fantastic conversation that day. They stayed longer than two minutes. And it, it got some thoughts stirring in me. And I came down to church, and I was chatting with Barbara Fletcher about the whole conversation. And she said, the amazing thing about that concept, Jennifer, is that phrase is nowhere in the Bible, the man being the spiritual leader of the home. Now, I'm not saying that God didn't establish relational places of health for men and women. I'm saying that phrase is not in the Bible. So where did it come from? How did we get to that phrase? And what does it really mean? And how do we live according to that? And when you start thinking about it, there are a lot of phrases that we use that are not in the Bible and that we attribute to God. And we need to know the nature and the character of the one who created us and is the living word and wrote the word so that we know how to respond in those times when we hear somebody saying something and we go, wait a second, does the Bible really say that? So to get us launched, we've got some green quizzes coming your way. I didn't want you to get a sneak peek at them. So Valanda and Bonnie are going to hand them out. These are true false quizzes. There will be no grade. As a matter of fact, I may not even tell you all the answers because I don't know all the answers. I mean, I kind of do, but I kind of don't. And so this is just for you to talk at your table. If some of you have a smartphone and you want to look some of these up, you can find out some of the hilarious things that I found out about the origin of some of these things. As a matter of fact, when I was researching this, so these are phrases, and your job is to say true or false, is this from the Bible? And I kid you not, I saw a website where there was this quote, and a professor in a college had had to convince his student that this dog won't hunt wasn't a proverb from the Bible. I almost put it on your true-false list. This dog won't hunt. So work with your tables, talk about it, and if, you're, if you finish and have extra time, uh, see if you can find what the source is or what verse it might have come from, if it is in the Bible, or if it's close to something but not quite what you think they might have been thinking about. So you've got some time to look at these together, compare notes, see what you think. Okay. Some of you haven't gotten very far, but I've eavesdropped on your conversations, and that's okay. You weren't really trying to get very far. Some of you are like all the way done and like, what else, Jennifer? Give me more. Give me more. Okay, so as we look at this, speaking of which, I need one so I remember what I told you guys, what you're looking at. Thank you. Oh, that's right. I have the key in my Bible, so I actually didn't need the green copy. I forgot. Okay, so God won't give you more than you can handle, true or false. 
false. Now, one of the things I want to point out, one of these tables asked me, is this true or false verbatim? And I said, yes, this is true or false verbatim. Are these phrases actually in the Bible? I know, and some of you have already accused me of being tricky. Honestly, I just went online and I wrote phrases from the Bible that aren't from the Bible, or verses, Bible verses that aren't really in the Bible. And you, it's amazing what you can find when you look it up, okay? So God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, a lot of them are based on Scripture, okay? So this one is based, most often people are talking about 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, and I'll read that to you. I'm not going to read all of them, but I do want to talk about this one because it's an example for several of these. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Starting, here we go. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is generally what people are referring to when they say God won't give you more than you can handle, but that's not actually what the Bible says. I'm not going to preach anymore on that because this is one that we're going to circle back to later on in the year and actually spend one of our gatherings looking at what does this mean, what is the Bible actually saying, and how do we get on a, on a slightly wrong trajectory with God if we think that it's true that he won't give us more than we can handle, okay? So... No more, I'm not preaching that one. Somebody else is to preach. So, moving on to spare the rod, spoil the child. What do you think, true or false? A little true, a little false. This is one where verbatim, it's false. It actually does not say spare the rod, spoil the child. But content-wise, it's really pretty close to what it says. So I'll look up Proverbs 1324, and I am giving you these in case you want to write them down. I won't read all of them, but I'm going to give them to you. Proverbs 1324 says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. So concept, yes. Maybe boiled down into theological truth for all time. You must spank your children or they're going to get spoiled. I'm not going to preach on that tonight. But it's not verbatim what it says right here, but, but it's true biblically over and over again that we're to discipline our children, okay? So moving through the rest of these a little bit faster, those first two, the first example, kind of close to the Bible verse, but actually a concept that's not biblical or godly at all. Second one, kind of close, but not, but the concept is also kind of close, okay? So God helps those who helps themselves, true or false? Did anybody find who actually did say it? Aesop. And then Aesop was quoted by Benjamin Franklin. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, what about cleanliness is next to godliness? False. John Wesley, a 18th century Methodist evangelist. He must have liked to clean house. Um, there was also one reference, and I have not looked this one up, so take this one with a grain of salt. One place mentioned that that might have been referring to James 4, 8. So if any of you are just digging this, you can look into that later, okay? Uh, what about when God closes a door, he opens a window? Sound of music. Okay? <laughs> a penny saved is a penny earned. A penny saved is a penny earned. It's not a Bible verse. Somebody named George Herbert from the 1600s. What about pride comes before the fall? 
Concept, true. Verbatim, not true. You can find it in Proverbs 16, 18. Uh, To thine own self be true, Bonnie. Shakespeare. (laughs) And again, you guys, people quote these things as if they're Bible, and then we think it's a concept that God intends, and then we go, to thine own self be true? Really? Like, I mean, just take that just the next level deeper, and you go, that's not a biblical concept, but we listen. You know, one of the things I looked up in this was a professor of religion who would say to his um, students, most of whom had some biblical knowledge, he would quote some fake reference, something like, Second Hesitations 3.10 says, and give some false quote. And he said 90% of his students didn't flinch or blink an eye. We must be students of God's word enough to know if people who are quoting God's word are talking about the God that we know and we love. We must be students of his word. Money is the root of all evil. True or false? False, it's that verbatim. If you look at 1 Timothy 6.10, it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And those are two very different statements. That was 1 Timothy 6.10. Uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways is a lovely poem by William Cowper, loosely based on Isaiah 55, 8. A fool and his money are soon parted was another person from the 1500s named Thomas Tusser. Okay, what about this one? To forgive is to forget. Is that in the Bible? No. A lot of times people talk about Psalm 103.12, which talks about that to God our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Um, That doesn't mean forgetting. God still knows where east is and he still knows where west is. Now there's a difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. I believe that God chooses not to remember and he invites us to choose not to remember. But forgiving is not forgetting. Friends, we don't forget, but we choose not to remember, and we choose not to hold it against. Uh, What about love the sin or hate the sin? It's false. God talks about loving all people, and the Bible talks about hatred for sin, but it was St. Augustine and then Gandhi who made this phrase popular, but it's not in the Bible. And what about all things work together for good? Some true, some false. Again, verbatim, it's false. Concept, that one's a little tricky. We might have to come back to it and spend another month on it. Let's read that one together. It's found in Romans 8, 28 is the verse that it's based on. And it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. God is working towards the good. Other places in the Bible, it says that God is taking what the enemy means for evil and turning it to good. So concept, it's close. Verbatim, nope. It's not just quite as cut and dried. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up in a fairly lighthearted manner was just to introduce the year for you and to bring this point up. We need to guard against little pithy statements, even if they were true, that become pat answers. So someone is going through a painful time in life and you say, oh, 
all things work together for good. You know, when I'm in deep pain, I don't really want to hear that. I want to hear that you understand my pain, that you hear my hurt, and that it is okay to be hurting in your presence. See, here's the deal. If we are not okay with people who are in pain because it makes us uncomfortable, because if they're in pain, then I don't know what to do with myself, and so I want to make them feel happy. So I want to say, all things work together for good. God will always provide for your needs. And some of my pithy statements are true, and some of them are not even in the Bible, but I'm not listening to them because really what I'm trying to do is get them to feel okay so that I can feel okay about me because I was able to make them happy. Because if they're not okay, then I'm not okay because I can't let God be God. And so one of the reasons why we need to know scripture is so that we know God's heart and we know his character and we know the way that he responded to people who were in pain and who were suffering and who were needing guidance so that we can be people with wisdom and discernment who don't just throw out pat answers without really listening to the people in our world and really hearing from them. Why do we need to know the Bible? I've got an array of Bible. This is my Bible collection, by the way. And I thought I'd just walk you down my Bible memory lane tonight. Because, well, I don't know exactly why. <laughs> to Jennifer, from Grandpa and Grandma Hendrickson, Christmas 1977. How many of you weren't born yet in 1977? Thank you, thank you, thank you. So this says, Red Letter, Jerusalem, New Testament. <laughs> My grandma brought this back from a trip to Jerusalem. I know I had some kids' Bibles. This is the first Bible I remember. And I thought the New Testament meant that it was new <laughs> and that it had just been written, you know, like recently, like maybe in 1976. <laughs> I was five in 1977, by the way. And I remember what an eye-opening, awe-inspiring moment it was for me to get a full Bible and realize that the Old Testament and the New Testament were both really, really old. How can something new be old? This one has cool little pictures. I used to flip through and look at all the pictures. My next Bible that I remember, any of you remember this one? The Way, the Living Bible that had pictures in it. My parents are in the Bible. They're not in this one. I don't know where the copy is, but there's a couple of this kind of version that came out, and they were students at Seattle Pacific University, and there was this day that they were walking under an umbrella in the rain, and they're like the start of Hebrews, because these have pictures at the start of real people. So yeah, my parents are in the New Testament, because it's so new. <laughs> my next Bible I remember was my student Bible. This was when I was starting to learn to have my devotions in my quiet time, and and I had these have little student commentary notes and this kind of a thing. I remember taking this back and forth to Salem Academy to my Bible classes as I began to learn more and more about God's word. There's a three-track reading plan in here, and some months I did that, and some months I didn't, and it's falling apart. And then there's this one. I do have a point for my walk down memory lane. This Bible, well, let's just see what the inscription says. See how many of you were born by this year. Let's see here. Our daughter, Jennifer Hope Bulgin, by her parents, Bud and Hope Bulgin, on Jennifer's 16th birthday, March 11th, 1988. How many of you weren't born in 88? Oh, Jessica, you're killing me. Jane. <laughs> how old does that make this Bible? This Bible's pretty old. This Bible has been rebound. You know, there's a place on Howell Prairie that'll rebind Bibles, and they do a really good job, which is why my, I still have a Bible that says Jennifer Hope Bulgin on it, and I've been married for 16 plus years. 
This Bible has pages falling out. <laughs> this Bible is worn and tattered. This Bible has my heart in its pages. This Bible has seen me through my daughter having open heart surgery and my husband before he was my husband wrestling with whether or not we should still be dating and my brother trying to figure out if he liked having a little sister or not and my parents struggling through their marriage and, and me trying to figure out if I wanted to be a pastor of women's ministries or not. It's tear-stained and tea-stained and underlined and, and I know where the verses are on its pages. I love the tools that technology gives us but you can't know where the verses are on the pages when your Bible is on your phone. But I love that I can look up another version. I learned about that with, let's see, this Bible. This is my first Spanish-English Bible. Back a long, long time ago, I was fluent in Spanish, and I taught in Spanish, and I would travel to Mexico, and I would interpret for the teams. And I was talking with my high school Spanish teacher, and I said, I feel totally comfortable to interpret, but I don't have a good depth of spiritual vocabulary. I know my kitchen vocabulary and my playground vocabulary and my vacation Bible school vocabulary, but I don't know my salvation vocabulary and my how do you talk to somebody about really knowing Jesus vocabulary. I said, how do I build that knowledge base? And she said, start doing your own personal quiet time in Spanish. And that was when I started to realize how words that you've read over and over and over again so many times that they've just become rote and you can read them and not even know what you're reading because you've heard them so many times can jump off the page at you when you read them differently. Matter of fact, if I can find it. Hmm. El espíritu y la novia dicen ven, y que el que oiga diga ven, y el que tenga sed venga, y el que quiere tome gratuitamente del agua de la vida. I used to read that over and over and over because I just liked how it sounded. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I began to learn that when we would read the Bible in a version other than the one we were used to or a language other than the one we were used to, we would begin to glean new truths and notice things that perhaps we hadn't noticed before. That's why I have this one. This one is the message. Um, I usually look up the message online because this one has been lost for a lot of years. I found it this morning when I was trying to bring all my Bibles. <laughs> this one is in a language I don't know. Ah, it was from India. Huh, my dad had gone to India. This was in 1980. So this one's from India. This one is in English and Korean. My dad was on staff at the Nazarene Church when I was growing up as their pastor of college age and missions. So he would take all these short-term trips to different places and bring me back a Bible. Really glad these are some of the things that I saved. But why does it matter? I have to tell you that when I did this today, when I pulled out all these Bibles and I and I took a look at my history, I just got emotional. Because Timothy, Timothy says this, chapter three, verse 16, 
All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I would not be the person I am today if I had not been taught at a very young age to immerse myself in God's word, to be a student of God's word, to know it inside and out. And I find that it just bleeds out of who I am now. Years and years ago, I was in a, um, I was at a discipleship training school with Youth with a Mission, and there was a man who was teaching us for a week, and he, as he taught, scripture just flowed off his tongue. He didn't have to look it up. He didn't have to look at his notes. He had verse and reference. People would ask questions, and he had verse and reference. He knew the Bible like nobody I had ever seen before, and he was the most humble man I had ever seen speaking on the platform. And I said, I thought to myself and I prayed, I said, God, someday I want to know the Bible like he knows the Bible. I want it to be a part of me that simply flows out so that I can be a person, when I hear one of those pithy statements, I can know whether or not that matches the nature and the character of the God who loves us. Peter, I think, says it best. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just been teaching the people, and it was a really hard teaching. And it says that many people who had been following him deserted him. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. Where would we go? I remember when I was about... 19, maybe 20, and I'd been, uh, I'd been raised in a Christian home. I had asked Jesus into my heart when I was five or six. It was in kindergarten, but I don't know if it was before or after my birthday. So I'd been walking with the Lord for 15 years, and I remember a moment of just thinking, is this even worth it? Is this even true? Is this even how I want to live my life? Is this, like, that, that moment in your late teens, early 20s, for those of you who know you've been raised in the church, and there comes a moment when your faith has to become your own. It can't be about what everybody else has taught you anymore. And if you have children and you didn't already know this, they have to hit a point where they question, and they have to hit a point where they doubt, because it's got to become their own. It can't just be what we teach them and tell them. Somewhere it has to turn a corner and become their own. And for me, I remember right where I was standing in my bedroom when I thought, I don't even know if this is worth it. And the thought wasn't even a split second off my brain when I immediately thought like Peter, but where else would I go? God is everything. He's all I have. He's all I know. Where else would I turn? He alone has the words of life. So we need to be students of that word. And that's what we're going to do together at the gathering this year. So bring your Bible or bring your phone. <laughs> bring something where you can look stuff up. Because as we get to know the Bible and we recognize the importance of being aware and not ignorant, as I looked up this stuff about the verses that aren't actually verses, they call them phantom verses and they call it biblical ignorance. We don't want to be guilty of biblical ignorance. We want to have biblical awareness. And yet, even when we know God's word, even when we have become students of his word, and can I just say that the best way to become a student of God's word is to read it. Just read it. 
Uh, one of my new Bibles that's not in my collection because I forgot to bring it is um, the one-year Bible. And I keep it right where I eat my breakfast and some days I read it and some days I don't. But it just keeps me with something that I can be looking at in the Bible to keep me in God's word uh, along with the other things that I'm studying for the stuff that I do around here. I love my one-year Bible. I think if I was trying to be... Um, real focused with it and make sure that I read through the Bible in a year, I might get kind of frustrated with it, but that's not the way I use it. I use it to just help me have a place to read. Um, and then the other Bible that I'm using more and more these days is this pew Bible that I stole. Now, <laughs> for the record, I mostly keep it in this building, although I occasionally take it home because this is now my preaching Bible because it's a New Living Translation and it's the one that they ask us to teach from because it's the one that they have in the sanctuary. And so I did steal a Bible, but it does stay in my office. Although I think um, however long it may be when I'm done working here and I don't have an office anymore, I'm going to take it on the, what's the principle where if you've had it long enough, it just becomes yours? I'll ask permission. I got a hymnal that way too from Laura a long time ago. I took it and I had it forever and then I felt so guilty I brought it back and I brought it back about two weeks before they took all the hymnals out of our pew racks and said they weren't going to use them anymore. So I said, can I have a hymnal back? Yes, you can have a hymnal. Even when we know God's word, we bump into challenges. We bump into things where good people, godly people, Godly scholars who have studied the Bible deeply land on different sides of certain topics, don't we? We run into things where people who love... I remember um, being in a setting when I was younger that was a very conservative Christian setting and going to a different setting that was a very charismatic Christian setting and kind of feeling like you couldn't have had more polar opposites than those two settings. And yet the people that I knew and had relationship with in both those settings loved Jesus with their whole heart and were doing everything they could to serve him. But if you put the leader of this setting and the leader of this setting in the same room, they might not even think that the other was a believer because of how distinctly they differed over the theology of the Bible, but they were both reading the same Bible and knowing the same God. And so we can be students of God's word, we can read his word, we can be in Bible study, and we can still bump into things where it's difficult to know where to land. One of those is a little ironic for me to bring up. Does the Bible really say it's okay for women to preach? <laughs> Does the Bible really say it's not okay for women to preach? That's the more obvious one. There's verses in there that if you wanted to proof text it, you could open your Bible and say it's not okay for a woman to speak in church. And it's in these places where we meet the challenges that we need to have a certain attitude and posture toward the scripture and toward others so that we can be the loving body of Christ that Jesus meant us to be. Because when our preferences become our biblical interpretation we are in danger of missing our interpretation. Follow me here. Um, you may or may not in the past have heard me talking about God languages, different ways that we connect with God. So some people really connect through God intellectually. They, when they get a time to sit with their Bible open, they just sense God's presence, the words are jumping off the page, and that is their deepest connection to their relationship with God is through his word. Others, their deepest connection to their relationship with God is through worship. They're, they're enthusiasts. They like to lift their hands in worship. They like to praise him. They, some of them like to dance. 
There are others whose closest connection to God is through the traditions of their youth. And when they're doing things the way they've always done things, when they're reading the prayers that they've always read on Easter and Christmas and Lent, when they have banners that are the colors of royalty, the blacks and the whites, and they represent certain things, the tradition rises up, and this tradition reminds them that people all over the world celebrate the same God the same way, and they feel so close to him. Others would be called an uh, ascetic. They feel closest to God in simplicity. Actually, even for some people, even self-depravity, fasting, and, and bare walls, and maybe even cold. I don't, I don't get this. I think these are people who are called to be monks. It's not me. But what happens is when we take the way that we connect to God, which is a reflection of a piece of his character, just one piece of his character, and we make it our theology, then we end up with churches full of intellectuals, churches full of enthusiasts, churches full of traditionalists, and churches full of ascetics. And when it's full of enthusiasts, they tend to go in an enthusiastic way, and there's no checks and balances to keep them from interpreting Scripture according to their preferences. And by their personality and their preference, they're very exuberant, and they're very loving, and they're very joyful, and they're very worshipful, but they might also be very off track theologically. <laughs> but when you have a church full of intellectuals who are right, and they know their word, and they know the truth, and they have knowledge, but they are right all the time, they don't have any sense of checks and balances to bring them into the loving enthusiasm of the soul that is alive with God. And I'm not saying they're not alive. I'm just saying when we polarize based on our preferences, we lose the richness that God intended for his bride. God intended for the body of Christ to stay together, to do life together, and to provide checks and balances so that when one preference, one personality type started to lean away from the plumb line of his word and the plumb line of his Holy Spirit, somebody else who loved them would say, I love your heart for God, I love your passion for God, and I don't think what you're saying is actually in the Bible. <laughs> I love your knowledge. I love your passion for integrity. I love your passion for God's word. But did you know that 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can have all knowledge, but if you have not love, you have nothing. If we don't read the Bible as a group of loving, humble, teachable people, we will not be the reflection of Christ that God intended his bride to be. What does humility look like? Humility isn't saying, well, I think this about the Bible, but that might not be right. I mean, there's some truths that, that we stand on. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. That's not debatable. It's not humble to say, well, you think he's not. I think he is. One of us might be right. One of us might be wrong. Hey, maybe we're both right. That's not humility. <laughs> but in these areas where it's not a salvation issue. This isn't about whether or not Jesus is the son of God or whether or not he rose again or whether or not there is eternal life. This is about whether or not a woman can teach a man. I'm really passionate about that subject and you might hear more about that subject, but that is not a salvation issue, friends. It is not an issue worth being unloving about. And even though I know how God has wired me and I know the place that I am in gives me the freedom to be in a role of, of teaching, 
and I love that and I value that more than you can ever imagine, I have to hold it with open hands. And I have to humbly say, I will walk as God calls me to walk as much as I can be true to his Holy Spirit in my life and submitting myself to the leadership of the church that I attend. But I will not say that I know I'm right and you're wrong. And I will not be unloving to somebody who thinks different than me about that. I will not be rude. I will not be disrespectful. I will not be judgmental. I will allow people to have the journey that they are on. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He's been teaching them for several chapters, and then he says this, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. And then you leave in God's hands where things fall on this spectrum of, within the bounds of salvation, Christ being God's one and only son, there's probably some people who think this and there's probably some people who think this and I think that they both love Jesus and are following him with their whole heart. And so with humility, we maintain teachable spirits that are willing to hear from others and that are willing to admit that I might not know it all and I will live as true to the spirit of the living God in me as I know how. Is this making sense? Another thing we need to do in order to walk through these places where challenges rise up, is that we need to have courage to look at things in a new way. We need to have the courage to take something that's just been, it's been what I was taught since I was little. It's all I know. I don't know another way to look at it. And here comes this person saying, hey, there's another way to look at it. For example, next month, Laura Scherer is going to be teaching here, and she's going to be talking, I don't know her exact title, but her question that we're looking at is, does the Bible really say that a Christian needs to have a quiet time? Kind of unpack what the Bible says about how we pursue the Lord. And there are things that we've always been taught and always assumed that maybe we need to look at a different way. But here's the problem, and I bumped into this in my early 30s. I began to notice that some of the things I had always been taught about God and that I had always been taught about the Bible didn't really ring as true as I had always thought. And there were some certain areas of life that I had to really look and dig and go, okay, God, what did you mean when you said this? And I've always assumed it meant this. And and I began to have things in my life that I always thought were true that I was coming to find I really don't believe they're true at all. But if you have even one of those things that you begin to question, it's like this black hole opens up and you go, well, what else that I've always believed is true isn't true? And do I have to go through them all one by one by one by one? And I found that the black hole opened up and I asked that question, but I didn't have to go through them all one by one. I didn't have to take every belief and pull it off the shelf and turn and look and shine the light and figure it out. What I found was that life would bring to the surface the places where I had false beliefs that God's spirit in his graciousness would cause to rise up in me an unsettledness or a sense of doubt or pain. or I would bump into something where I was stuck. And when I took some time to talk with my counselor or my life path group about why I was so stuck, I would find that it boiled down to something I had made an assumption about that was a false belief, that wasn't a godly thought. It was, you guys know this, when you're little, things happen in life. 
And you establish a belief about the way something is based on your experience, but you're young enough that that belief never even makes itself, you're never even cognitive of it. It doesn't ever come to your brain, but yet it influences you at a deep level for the rest of your life until you bump into it and you get stuck. And when you start recognizing what you're stuck on, then you find that, oh, when this and this and this happened when I was younger, I formulated an under the waterline belief that I've been functioning on now for 30 years, and that belief is no longer serving me well. Uh, let me see if I can give you an example. I'm off my notes now. The only one I can think of is just a whopper, so forgive me for the whopper, but this is, this is the one that makes sense in my life. I found about 10 years ago that I was really, really stuck in perfectionism, and amazing fear of failure, amazing. I was just petrified to do the wrong thing, so much so that some days I couldn't even decide which clothes to put on because what if God had an outfit he wanted me to wear and I wasn't wearing the right one? I was really tied up and wrapped up in not failing. And as I began to unpack with help, a lot of help from others, what this was coming from, the underlying belief was, if I make a mistake, my relationship with God will be broken. Because the Bible says that if I am in Christ, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, if the old has gone and the new has come, I shouldn't be making any mistakes. Yes, I'm forgiven, but that doesn't... Forgiven meant for all the things that I did before I knew I wasn't supposed to make mistakes. But now that I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to make mistakes because the new has come. And I had to step way back and come to a new understanding of what forgiveness means, that forgiveness is a daily awareness that I will never do everything right and I am still God's precious, cherished, and beloved daughter. And then I be able to be, began to be able to move forward in my relationships and in my work and in my parenting because I was no longer paralyzed by the fear of making a mistake because then I understood that a mistake was just that, a mistake. A bad choice was just that, a bad choice... Quite honestly, a sin was just that, a sin. None of it changed that I was accepted by God. None of it would break my relationship with him, but I had to come to the place that I understood that that blind spot underlying belief had been impacting me for a long time. So it takes courage to look at things in a new way. We also need a safe place to ask hard questions. For example, um, this whole women in ministry question, there are places where it's safe for me to process that out loud. There are places where it's not really safe. People have such strong opinions and want to sway me to their opinion one way or the other that it's not, it's not a safe place for me to process how I really feel because I'm just trying to get swayed. And there are other places, there are other issues where if we ask our questions, we're afraid people are going to think that maybe they're just not even really a Christ follower. Maybe they just don't even know God because if they're questioning that, then... Man, what's wrong with them? <laughs> and we need a place to say, you know what? We bump into things in here that are hard to know what to do with. And if we can't ask the hard questions and dig deep and say, what does this really mean? If, if our way of functioning means that we have to believe a certain thing and questioning that thing is not okay, then we can never get down to the really heart knowledge of what is it that I do believe that God is trying to tell us here. Some of you have have heard me give this example many times before. I apologize. Um, when I was growing up, I, of course, read the verses about a wife submitting to her husband. 
and I heard lots of different teaching on what submission meant. And the older I got, the worse taste that was in my mouth. I did not like that thought. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where when I read the verses, I would get angry. But I didn't really have to do business with him because I wasn't married. So the night that Jeff and I got engaged, he, we had been at the beach. He brought me back to my house. I went inside, got in bed, sat down, and I said, Dear God, it now becomes suddenly imperative for me to understand, because I had said yes, it now becomes imperative for me to understand what you mean by a wife submitting to her husband. And God, I just have to say, I don't get it, but I know that you're good, and I know that what you want for me is my best, and I know that whatever you mean in here is how I want to live. I just don't know what that looks like, and I don't know what it means, and I don't believe it means what I've been taught it means. I don't believe that what my upbringing taught me about submission is what you really mean by submission, and I don't know how to figure out what it really means. So God, I'm just going to release this whole topic to you, and when you want to teach me, I am ready and willing to learn, but I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm not going to panic about it. I'm not going to go try to do a word study on submission and figure it out, but when you want to teach me, I want to know what you meant that would be good for my heart and good for my marriage and good for the man I love if I would submit to him. But that word submit has so much baggage in the English language that God, I'm going to need you to teach me what you mean because I don't get it. And in a story that's too long to tell tonight, God did teach me that. And it was a journey that I had been on. We'd been married two or three years. I had been wrestling with God about something and I ended up choosing to do life a little bit different than I'd been doing it before. And I loved the results. I loved the results in me. I loved the results in my husband. I loved how it changed the way that we did life together. I felt like I had come into a free and open space, this wide open meadow with beautiful wildflowers all over. And when I was just reveling in the wisdom of God and leading me through this process, he just gently whispered to my soul, oh, and by the way, Jennifer, this is submission. Oh, it wasn't what I'd always been taught. It wasn't explainable in a pithy statement, (laughs) but it was beautiful, and it is beautiful. When we will have the courage and the safe place to dig into the questions that we're afraid to ask because we're afraid what people will think if we don't really have a rock-solid sense of, well, of course a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. It's what the Bible says for crying out loud. And we'll really talk about it. We can sometimes come out to the place where we see the beauty of what God intended and the wisdom of his word. So that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to take a topic a month and we're going to talk about does the Bible really say. Uh, Like I said, Laura next month is going to be talking about um, having a quiet time. I'm going to come back in a few months and talk about uh, the man being the spiritual leader of the home. What does the Bible say about that? Uh, In December, we're going to have JJ. JJ is one of our international partners in Central Asia, and you really don't want to miss that one. They're here once every four years. She's a dynamic speaker with a really unique perspective on life, and if you can at all make it that first week of December, you want to be here to hear JJ. And can I encourage you to bring a friend? Uh, One of my desires for this time is that it becomes a place where it's safe for us to bring people who haven't come before, people who haven't come to Salem Alliance before, people who haven't come to know the Lord. 
that this would be a place where we could be authentic enough. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about God's word, but may we talk about it in such a way that every woman around our table would sense that she was safe and free to have whatever thought she has and know that it will be received with love and truth. So use this little bookmark as an invitation tool to say to your friend, hey, this is coming up. And to know, hey, I know Laura Scher is going to be teaching next month. Let's go and listen. Hey, Jennifer said we can't miss JJ. Let's go and hear. And then I'll be back in January. And we've got a few more um, lined out through the rest. But that's what we know so far about the lineup for the gathering. All right? Let's pray. Father, as we sang worship songs tonight, we talked about you being the very breath in our lungs. And your word is the very food for our soul. May we be students of your word. May we be students of your character. May we be those who are not content with a surface level knowledge of who you are and what your word says, but who eat it up, who eat your word. Your name, amen. A couple reminders before we dismiss. Um, first one is information about women's retreat and how to register, if you haven't yet, is on the back table. If you have questions about that, if you want to register, or if you are already registered and you wanted to pay tonight, there will be a couple women at the pursuits desk, which is just right out in the hallway around the corner, and one can take your payment, and the other one would have a computer, could help you get registered or answered your questions about um, anything, any questions you have about retreat. Um, if you look at these, there are some rooms that say full on them. Um, we're filling up pretty fast this year, which is really fun. There's a lot of energy into this one. Um, take a look at who the other speakers are who are going to be there teaching some workshops and doing some speaking. And again, that, that uh, deadline is in a week and a half for getting registered and paid for that. And don't forget the scholarship envelopes on the table if God has been nudging your heart. Let me finish with a blessing. This blessing comes from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Would you stand to receive a blessing? And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ, let the word of Christ in all its richness fill your lives, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Have a great week.